Welcome to the Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene podcast. This week, we're joined with the wonderful Dr. Yogi Henlin. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks so much for having me, Kate. I'm so excited to hear more about your work, which is incredibly multifaceted and really runs the gamut across different, not only plant life, um, but also different forms of maybe plant life, maybe something else, um, as we'll talk more about. Um, I was wondering if we could start by you introducing yourself to our audience. Sure. Um, so I am an environmental philosopher and a public health scientist. I've been working in both for, for a while, and I decided that I couldn't choose, that I saw how both interleafed with each other, and that... Um, the insights that I gain about the natural world really helped me for better understanding human health. And looking at human health, I realized that we're all related, right? The dominant paradigm in public health right now is uh, global health and planetary health, which shows, you know, that old uh, uh, metaphor of a butterfly flapping its wings on the other side of the planet, influencing a uh, typhoon, uh, um, you know, you know, here, I, I think that that's quite interesting for us um, now that we have sort of the scientific ability to track some of this, for example, with attribution science, looking at how um, we can capture some air molecules and show which fossil fuel company emitted what percent of the CO2 in a given uh, sample of air. So, we're seeing how everything's related. Uh, we're seeing how, um, as humans, with the extended evolutionary synthesis, that um, we have a hollow beyond, right? Um, that we have a not just a gut microbiome, but a heart microbiome, a brain microbiome. And I'm always curious how this relates to plants, because plants are um, the ultimate um, exchangers and peddlers of energy. Um, I am so interested in plants because I see them as these beings that are open to um, the fact that they are always already hollow beyonds, that every single plant that we know of, terrestrial plant, has um, endophytic fungi, right? That every plant is shot through with a whole nother life form that is enabling it in many ways and protecting it from other fungi and bacteria and molds, et cetera, that might harm it. And <clears throat> the plants seem to have been able to always find the cooperative way forward, whether it was um, providing flowers and fruits for animals and insects um, or with, uh, you know, the, uh, the, um, wood wide web, as um, uh, Su Susan Simard calls it. Um, <clears throat> I, I find that this endless cooperation is really uh, what we need now. And as uh, I've written in one of my um, uh, papers on uh, Tom Robbins' jitterbug perfume, uh, I really see the work that plants do uh, this photosynthetic light technology that they possess as being a better way for science to go forward 
than the industrial um, sort of Baconian Newtonian model of, you know, um, racking nature and, and stealing secrets. Thank you so much for that introduction to your work um, and your orientation within the very wide field of critical plant studies. My first question for you um, is a tough one, arguably, I think for most of our interviewees, but I think it's a good one to start with. What is your favorite plant or algae and why? Yeah, um, thanks for that. I just finished a book uh, co-edited um, with um, uh, Natalia de Rossi, uh, uh, Sergio uh, Mugnai, and um, uh, Joanna Wegeler on uh, bean algae uh, transformations in water plants uh, with uh, Brill uh, Press. And I spent a lot of time thinking about, and uh, indeed almost every day I ingest uh, cyanobacteria, which is blue-green algae. And, um, you know, technically this isn't a plant, right? Uh, we're, we're talking about a, a special type of bacteria. Um, but in fact, this is the original um, alga. Uh, cyanobacteria are the original um, form of uh, the proliferation of algae that we see. Um, and I like blue-green algae, not just because I feel better when I ingest it, uh, and I love the color, and I appreciate its uh, function in our ocean ecosystems, but also because it shows the complication of taxa, right? When we're doing taxonomies of plants, um, what do we do with all of these outliers, right? All, all of these sorts of um, misfits uh, that um, don't, you know, don't make Linnaeus's uh, framework uh, function the way that it's supposed to. Um, and, and cyanobacteria in this way, they bring to the fore that our categories are never going to be um, enough, that our models are never going to fit reality. And so to me, it's sort of the this, this sly or um, sneaky or witty ways in which uh, plants are always define our expectations. I love that. I especially love that part of the text where I, after kind of discussing different plants, critical plant studies, like topics with folks, I love those plants that seem to be quite defiant, like whether they define being characterized in a certain way through taxonomy or whether they defy certain ways that humans might view them or want to use them. Um, yeah, it's really fascinating. And especially with algae, it was just I, I haven't like many people, I think of the general population, especially in the U.S., where I'm. Uh, joining the call from um, algae and seaweed just aren't as much on our cultural radar, I think, as a lot of um, different cultures, especially, for example, as is mentioned in the book in Japan, um, where it plays a huge cultural role on <laughs> all the different types. Um, yeah. So speaking of defiance, um, one of the things that I was really interested in um, being algae, it came up that 
certain types of algae are quite resistant to industrial processes. Could you explain a bit more about that and kind of maybe use an example? Um, and what do you think as a philosopher, why is that important or why is that interesting? Thanks, Kate, for that uh, multi-pronged question. Um, yeah, so until very recently, um, seaweed uh, harvesting was always an artisan craft form um, because seaweed moves. The ocean is a different medium. You can't expect what's there one day to be there the, the next, and you can't really cultivate in the same way. You know, we have fish farms inland, um, and there are indeed algae farms, uh, which I am uh, of, of two minds about. Um, but harvesting something from the ocean, farming the ocean, has always been more of an art than an industry. And I find this to be... Um, one of these things I sort of am on the sidelines cheering for, yay! Um, <clears throat> because to, to get uh, the, you know, hundreds of different seaweeds uh, that are used um, uh, culinarily, um, you have to have people who have developed relationships with the place. In the words of Robin Wall Kimmer, they have become indigenous to a place, to know it, to know the seasons, to know the tides, to know the moons, to come back every year and be able to see the differences and how things are shifting. One of my uh, Tai Chi teachers, uh, a Taoist, um, um, Fang Shifu, uh, he, he says, when he's teaching Tai Chi, he says, be like algae, right? So you're always able to bend with the current, right? Sort of like the metaphor of bamboo rather than like uh, this eucalyptus tree that will fall in the wind. And so because of all this, these undulations in the ocean, it's very difficult to uh, to harvest algae in a, a mass way, right? And yet our current world, the, you know, what um, Bruno Latour calls uh, globalization minus the homogenization of the world, the sort of uh, biggering and biggering, um, to quote Dr. Seuss, um, <clears throat> that is involved in, uh, you know, oligopolies, uh, which is most of what our planet is now uh, subjected to, requires standardization, right? And standardization is also something that's difficult to find um, uh, in a watery medium, uh, and unless it's in a lab. So I enjoy that, um, you know, uh, nori, uh, cultivation, the sushi, sushi uh, uh, seaweed, right? Those sheets of of um, uh, seaweed paper that we roll on. That uh, my son eats them like chips. Uh, he's a nori addict. Um, that that nori was cultivated almost by accident originally um, in Japan, and then they they found ways, um, you know, in their bays where it would attach. To various things that, that they could they could coax it they could train it but that's very different than how we currently do industrial agriculture on land and and farming um you know under the monoculture model 
right? Because you, you, in, in a watery medium, you can never control what's going to attach. You know, you have to, uh, you have to sort of coax the conditions and try to, you know, keep things as uh, free from our own unconscious pollution as possible, right? You wouldn't want to have nori from a, a a bay where there's a factory that's polluting all sorts of, um, you know, arsenic or mercury or anything like that. Um, so there's a larger consideration that comes into play when we look at um, plant health in water mediums. Um, indeed, if we look at salt, right, we have this concept of salt as NACL. And that's never been what salt has uh, done for people, the, the service it's provided. Salt, there are, I don't know, 120, 130 sort of micronutrients <clears throat> that we can get through various salts. And these salts, of course, are part of the seaweeds. And so with seaweeds, what we call macroalgae, because we do, there, there's a distinction between microalgae like spirulina and macroalgae uh, like kombu, um, that with, with macroalgae, which really can re reproduce, you know, we're, we're talking meters per day. This, this stuff is like kudzu uh, in terms of how it can proliferate some of the macroalgaes can, can grow extremely quickly under the right conditions. And of course, they're taking up and absorbing all the minerals in that watery medium uh, right away. So, you know, the traditional notion of pollution um, in the 1950s, uh, which was the solution to pollution is dilution, right? Or out of uh, sight, out of mind, really doesn't work uh, in watery mediums. Uh, because we don't even know the effects. Uh, we, we pretend to think that there's linear dose responses. But if you look at lead, for example, there's a very nonlinear dose response where the very little, most little bit of lead can cause uh, IQ loss. And so actually, when you take a lot more lead per unit of lead, more than this really, really low parts per billion that can create brain damage, um, it does make things worse, but not as much as that initial threshold. And so I, I think that we are trained evolutionarily. Our, our instincts, um, you know, with terror management theory uh, show, you know, big threat equals big problem, little threat, no problem. Um, but that's not necessarily the case um, with our food systems and our food systems are our ecology. And so... That's why I like uh, algae in a, in a sense as a way of also, you know, at fatty fish, for example, it's, um, you know, all fatty, all, all fish more than two meters at this point in uh, our geological uh, history as humans are um, polluted with uh, toxins that are harmful to humans. And yet the algae somehow, because they don't have that fat in the same way, they don't bioaccumulate these toxins. Um, and, and so I'm always just uh, amazed by how um, the plants find a way to uh, clean our oceans, to metabolize uh, toxins, um, and uh, also to 
provide these micronutrients, these other salts, these other things that we're barely learning about now in science, how important they are to us. Um, and that they're all doing this without, um, yeah, any friction, right? Our science has come with a lot of friction to come to the same uh, um, insights that, that plants have have done you know we don't understand their biochemical language enough to respect it apparently otherwise we wouldn't be you know putting these pollutants into the, the life cycle um <laughs> sorry if that was long uh circuitous answer no that's great and it actually leads really well into my next question which focuses on algae and if it's possible kind of reframes them more at the center than humans. Um, is there something like a good life or the good life for algae? Um, and if so, what does that look like? Yeah, I do think there's a good life for algae. Um, in a paper that we uh, recently published in Plant Signaling and Behavior, um, which a more humanities-based version of that also appears in uh, the book. Um, uh, I talk about with my colleagues this question of photobioreactors, right? So <clears throat> if you'll recall ExxonMobil, Shell, for 10 years, they were investing billions in um, getting an algae-based um, biofuel. Now, they couldn't get the lipid content high enough, so it wasn't viable. Uh, you know, surprise, surprise, you know, mining uh, quadrillions of bodies of, uh, you know, algae doesn't really seem like a good solution to um, just replacing the substrate of our oil addiction rather than phasing out our oil addiction in terms of um, our own relationship to excess energy use. But one of the things we looked at in this paper is that algae live in consortia. There's this thing called the phycosphere. And the phycosphere is the all the all the relations of algae with all their other um, uh, sort of biochemical, but also other organisms in their midst. Um, in biosemiotics, uh, we would call this the umwelt of the, the algae. And so if you're trying to um, make an algae happy and have a good life, even in a, you could say an artificial environment, we came to the conclusion that <clears throat> when you have algal symbionts, you know, multi-species consortia together, that they will proliferate. Whereas when you have a single species, you're constantly having to um, feed it, uh, put in new um, uh, stock, clean it, instead of having a sort of self-feeding, self-cleaning um, ecosystem. And I think that, you know, the analogies to uh, terrestrial farming are very clear. When you do permaculture, when you plant the three sisters together, uh, beans, corn, and squash, they naturally act as, you know, uh, uh, pesticides for each other, herbicides, fertilizers for each other. Their nutrient cycles fit synergistically. Um, <clears throat> and so too with algae, with algal, algal consortia, um, 
we have uh, in the FICO sphere, we have, you know, the need for um, interaction with other uh, algal forms, other bacteria, sometimes even um, yeah, other plankton, other not just phytoplankton, but other forms of plankton um, that can potentiate due to the um, uh, the chemicals they release in the the water in that substrate. They potentiate uh, certain uh, abilities to communicate, to make sense of their environment, uh, to reproduce. Um, that without that the algae just aren't aren't as happy. So I definitely think that, um, you know, when when we look at algae in the wild, um, we see that these algal consortia, the phycosphere, they they actually um, they travel together in the currents of the water. That they these different algal groups, bacteria, also um, will sort of flow together, even, you know, ac across long distances. Um, and I don't know how that happens. I'm not an expert on that. Um, but it just amazes me that there is this natural affinity uh, that when we can pay attention to, we can also respect it, um, you know, through a planetary health perspective. We can look at, at ah, okay, so uh, these algae really do have different circumstances which they prefer that they actively uh, attract and uh, and will pursue so how can we if, if we're going to say try to reproduce algae for for food for um you know uh, one of the uh, blue green algae and spirulina it, it's amazing they're the most protein dense creatures on earth you cannot find a substance on earth that's more protein dense. We're talking 70% protein. Um, so obviously for uh, a vegan diet, a vegetarian diet, these are amazing boons, uh, you know, from the, the oceans to us. Um, and you don't need to eat a lot, you know, to, uh, to get positive effects. Uh, and there's also lots of other uh, positive knock-on effects that you can get besides the protein. But in our current milieu, uh, people seem to be focused on that. Um, but if you want to get uh, algal, algal oils or you want to get energy, because that's the whole idea of a photobioreactor, is that um, instead of maybe having like a nuclear power cell, you know, uh, with spent rods and all the, um, you know, consequences that come from that, there's the idea that we could be you know, running our electrical system via algal activity and harnessing, you know, the, the excess uh, energy charge from that. I think it's really interesting. At the same time, I'm very against algal slavery, just as I'm against animal slavery or human slavery for that matter. Um, so I, <clears throat> you know, I wonder um, how many of the these technologies could be very useful, but right now are still yoked to a system that is um, maximizing waste. And, and that, you know, I can't condone uh, or say that that would be good for algae. Um, but I could see a world in which, you know, multi-species algal consortia in a phy phytosphere or um, phycosphere, excuse me, um, 
could produce um, energy uh, in a good way for the algae and for the people. Um, and, and I think that that's pretty cool. Um, one of the areas of interest for members of the networking with plants in the Anthropocene kind of hodgepodge collaboration um, is respect and kind of thinking about what it means to have respect for plants. Um, and so throughout your work in our discussion today, it seems like respect is, is just really rich Um in the way you think about um, those relationships with plants. So I was wondering um, if you have an account of what it means to have respect for plants or algae, and then how is it embodied? Mm. Yeah, how is it embodied? That's, um, yeah, there's many facets to that question. Um, so I, was very influenced by Karen Barad's notion of um, ontoethical epistemologies, the idea that this is a sort of Gorgon knot that you pull at one and something else happens, right? That you cannot change your, your metaphysics or your epistemology without also changing your ethics and vice versa. Um, <clears throat> so I actually, yeah, I don't pay attention to ethics so much because I think that ethics cannot be separated from anything else. Um, in our Western cosmologies, we've typically tacked on ethics afterwards. You know, we have ethical review boards, you know, ethical communities. And, and it's a funny thing because it is, for me, embodying a, um, an ethos of separation rather than one that is ethical, actually. Um, one of my colleagues, um, a philosopher, Babette Babich, she says, ethics doesn't bake any bread. You know, philosophy doesn't bake bread in the sense that by itself, um, it doesn't leave us with, you know, in its current form, how to live a better life. Because as soon as we're stuck in sort of counterfactuals or abstractions or, you know, what ifs, we have already separated ourselves from time and space in which all beings live. And that's sort of an interesting trick that humans can do. Um, as far as I know, no other species has this sort of ability to take the world, extract some idea about it, Rubik's cubic, and then put it back, right? What used to be called reification. Um, and so we, we have this uh, amazing sort of analytic ability, and yet the model or the map will never match the territory. So that brings us to <clears throat> this question of what is our relationship with plants if it's not to be one of delayed or, you know, after the fact respect. Um, there are many ways to look at this. I, I like Alexis de Tocqueville uh, in Democracy in America. He talks about self-interest properly understood. And he says, you know, in these sort of early uh, pioneer towns in uh, New England, you would see <clears throat> people more or less working in solidarity because they understood that I am another you, that my health is only as good as that of my neighbor, 
which we learned in the pandemic, for example. And so I think that this notion of an expanded I away from the individual is one of the deepest teachings that plants and algae can teach us, right? That whatever we think we are or whoever I think I am is always going to be bigger than I can conceptualize because I'm only here because of the air that happens to have enough oxygen. Thanks, plants. Um, you know, the the fact that the composition of our earth is as it is due to billions of years of bacteria off-gassing and metabolizing. Um, the fact that my ancestors, you know, did their thing. But while most people focus on, oh, I'm here because others sacrificed, and they only talk about humans, we could look at the panoply of organisms and living beings and ecosystem processes uh, that brought us here. And that is humbling. And that there's no option but respect when one is humbled in that way. Um, I like the notion of relational ontologies um, as a way of understanding respect um, with plants too, because it's not about me wanting something and then getting it instrumentally through this plant. Um, but it's always has to be uh, a type of communication that's dialogical, not just me hallucinating in my head or, um, you know, justifying my actions. Um, but rather, you know, I really tend to Robin Wall Kimmerer's notion of um, the on honorable harvest, right? Don't take the first uh, part of a plant that you, you know, see, don't take the first, don't take the last, don't take more than half. If you, you know, happen upon some berry bushes and to give something back, whether that's, you know, a lock of hair or a song or, you know, your spit or your pee, um, you know, whatever it is, like give something back um, and make sure that your um, interaction with the plant ensures its longevity and health that next season that it will be able to come back um in a in a better way um and so how i practice this um is yeah you know for example with nettles uh you know we we were talking about nettles for a moment and so i i don't take the tops of the nettle um because then it won't regrow there um, it's, you need gloves most of the time, unless you really like the, the arthritic healing pr prickles. Um, but if you take the, the aerial part of a plant, then it, that stock can't keep growing. But if you take under that, the, the leaves, then the plant, that stock can keep on going. So I think that science has a good role here because, you know, this, this is something that you learn through observation and through, uh, you know, a method of doing that and then seeing, ah, it's not growing. Um, and so I, I appreciate that. Um, at the same time, I've learned mostly from, from others who knew more than me, um, how to be in right relationship with plants. Um, and that will change, you know, moment to moment. Um, you know, I like Aristotle's notion of right relationship, right. His, his, uh, 
notion of the uh, excellent actor, the excellent political actor is the phronimos who practices phronesis, which is doing the right thing at the right time in the right way with the right people for the right reasons, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and this also goes back to the Buddhist notion of skillful means, right? Um, so if I were you know, dying, I would obviously have different needs and a different relationship. Um, when I have enough to eat, then I can be even more careful, <clears throat> right? So I think it's incumbent upon us who do have enough to eat, who do have a roof over our head, who can contemplate these things to try to be more careful without being sentimental about it, without it being a, a sappy thing. I mean, good, efficient prayer for, um, you know, a lot of in indigenous uh, people that I know is nothing extra, nothing added. It's it's integrated into every act. Um, and I think that that's something that we all can, can work on, right? Is how to not see any of our... Um, the things we got to do as, as separate, but rather, you know, as I'm looking out here um, <clears throat> at a very beautiful green, uh, you know, um, backyard um, with, with some, some old trees, you know, 150 years old here. Um, you know, I, I feel that gravitas of there's nothing added, nothing missing. Um, it's, trying to unnumb or de-armor ourselves to the um yeah to the the teachings of the, of the plants many of the folks in the network are either educators students or both. And education is something that I think is really important to a lot of the people who listen to the podcast. And as you talk about, you know, ourselves as relational and the wisdom that you've received, not only from scientific methods, but also from folks who have kind of guided you in your treatment in relationship building with plants, um, I was wondering how you understand yourself as a teacher, student, or both, and then also how you would envision um, working with plants in education. Okay. Um, yeah, working with plants in education, I think it depends on, you know, uh, in a university setting, I would say you probably have the least amount of freedom. Um you know, at a high school, uh, middle or uh, primary school uh, levels, you probably have a lot more freedom uh, to, you know, tap into um, the the haptics of it uh, to, to actually touch, work with, grow, um, and try to learn directly from plants rather than it being an abstraction. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that... Um, in, in my experience, I, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a student of the plants. Uh, that's definitely my, my role first and foremost. Um, and that will not change um, because there's an inexhaustible uh, sort of mentor mentee relationship that can happen there according to my uh, vulnerability, my um, 
yeah, my, my capability to create space and time to, um, to suss out what is the next step on my path. Right. And so that's not something that's ever been linear for me. It's been more branching and elliptical temporally, um, which I think is fine, but sometimes it's maddening, right. For, uh, fitting into a, um, a clockwork, uh, sort of society like ours. Um, but rather that it has seasons, right. Um, and learning more, you know, finally having a, a space where I can grow plants myself is, is a great teacher, uh, too. Um, and learning about Bokashi, uh, for, um, uh, yeah, getting soil life uh, to be conducive to, you know, the transport of um, all the, uh, yeah, all the needs of, of different plants because different plants have different needs and some plants like hanging out together and some plants don't like to be next to each other. Um, and these are all things that you can, some of which you, you can learn in a book but others, um, there are so many variables going on that you have to um, you have to just listen. So I see the whole enterprise of being um, a novice, a, a student of the plants, as an exercise in, in listening and paying attention without jumping ahead too far. Because you know I have a a mind that likes to skip ahead. Um, skip over steps uh, because I think I know things and plants humble me every time when I try to do that, when I try to make assumptions. Um, so I see them as good teachers for good human relations in, in that way too, uh, because yeah, uh, it's, it's not just confined uh, to one uh, domain. Um, the, uh, the Swiss uh, uh, plant philosopher, uh, Florian uh, Kirchlin, um, she, she worked with the, the Swiss government, for example, um, to try to define what's the dignity of plants. Um, and I thought this was really interesting because it required a public sort of teaching moment in Swiss culture and government. And um, they, you know, one of the practical outcomes of this is they, um, in the barriers between, you know, the road and uh, where you know a farm would start or the whatever next thing was next to the road, they stopped mowing it as long, you know, they le much less frequently, or they would only do it after um, you know the plants had bloomed and been able to reproduce and the insects were not uh, there anymore. So this <clears throat> very sort of practical public use of um, you know. Uh, plant studies, knowledge, um, saved saved a lot of plants and a lot of insects and it uh, created more biodiversity. Um, <clears throat> and I think this is something that we can bring, you know, to our um, local uh, governments. Um, it's not a lot that we're asking for. At my university uh, in the Netherlands, um, we also uh, stopped... Um, you know, the ritual mowing of these, um, these, uh, the, these buffer, uh, areas. 
And what it allows is, you know, over many years, it allows secession to actually happen. It allows these plants that have come in and, you know, colonized these barren, degraded areas that humans have created. And it allows for more complex plant life and also um, insect, bird, and animal life to thrive from those spaces. Um, so, you know, there, there's a great um, <clears throat> old saying that, you know, a, a civilization is is healthy when uh, men plant trees whose shade they will not enjoy. And I feel that we need to play the long game with plants as well, that while we can, you know, cultivate our own, uh, even if we don't have uh, um, any place that we can, you know, go in the ground, we can cultivate in our home or on our balcony or wherever, um, our own relationship to plants personally, and, you know, go out into areas where we feel inspired by the, the interactions of all, all this life around us. Um, <clears throat> you know, they've, uh, in the last child of the wood, in the woods, um, the author talks about how all these studies show when we walk in forests, our, uh, cortisol, uh, levels drop. Um, and, that uh, there are all sorts of studies showing that even looking at pictures of plants help relax us. <laughs> and if we're going to look at education, if we're going to look at creating, you know, the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible, um, how do we intentionally design our uh, our surroundings to allow for this sort of permaculture notion um, where we don't have to do as much, right? Where we are empowering um, different plant uh, groupings to sustain themselves without watering, without fertilizer. Um, because ultimately, you know, in, in the last hundred years, our notion of dealing with plants is how can we control them? How can we make them exactly how we want? How can we have every cucumber and potato the same size? Um, and that sort of standardization, this sort of Euclidean uh, um, uh, sort of narrative that has, has been a big part of how we define ourselves as being masters of the universe, you know, the conquerors of earth. Um, we realize that that doesn't necessarily make us happy. It, and it definitely doesn't make the earth healthy or ourselves. Right. And that's where, again, like, how do we, you know, you talked about, um, is there such thing as the good life for algae? I'm saying, yeah. And it's the same thing that's the good life for us, even though plants are very different from animals. And I that's that's one of the reasons why I think plants are better to go to than an animal model, because they're foreign enough to us that we get very clearly that we can't just say that they're dumb humans. Like we oftentimes say with animals, oh, they're just incomplete humans, right? Where we are this Vitruvian man. Um, and with plants, it's so different because they have a different model. They're asymmetrical, they're torsional. Uh, uh, Karen Hull, uh, um, Hull um, she, she has a great paper on looking at uh, plant symmetry versus animal symmetry. And 
the things that we appreciate in plants are not the same things that we appreciate in animals. And that allows us to orient our own perspective um, and realize that some of the things that we have been trained to select for maybe are just one thing that matters um, when there's a plurality of important aspects to the world around us in our ecosystem that we cannot just apply and generalize and universalize the same principles that we use for this thing. Are you working on any um, current or forthcoming projects that you're really excited about that you'd like to share with the audience? Yeah, um, in relation to, to plants, um, I have a book I'm working on um, called Interspecies Solidarity, Valuing Difference in the Biotic Community. Um, and this comes out of my work in biosemiotics. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Biosemiotics, which is about um, bringing together the theoretical biology of Jakob von Uxkull and the um, semiotics of Charles Sanders Peirce, uh, the founder of uh, the American pragmatism. Um, <clears throat> and this book talks about how to make friends and commitments with other species, um, not as something that is good to do or is uh, you know some sort of virtue uh, uh, regaling um, uh, show, but rather as an intrinsic part of who we are. Um, I would say that <clears throat> the work of David Abram in The Spell of the Sensuous <clears throat> definitely impacted me here because this idea that we only become truly human through being seen by <clears throat> other creatures, plant, animal, microbe, virus, uh, fungal, is key to my understanding of myself um, and of what being happy, healthy, all, all the things <laughs> um, really means. Um, and, you know, I've, I in, in my work in public health, I've noticed that um, um, mortality rates um, for the first time since World War II have, have um, been going down in the last decade. So we're not living longer, um, despite all our, you know, techno science, all of our medical interventions. Uh, in medicine, only 20% of patient outcomes have to do with hospitals, medicine, drugs, pharmaceuticals, surgeries, any of that at all. And this is coming out of the um, uh, the U.S. Uh, Academies of Science, right? So this is not some fly-by-night um, paper. Um, so if that's the case, if our environment is 80 to 90% of our health, then we need to, for, for our own sake, you could say, we need to really focus on how to be better symbionts, how to be more mutualistic rather than parasitic, um, at least to be commensualist. Um, and so this is a very 
deep question for me uh, that goes back to the extended evolutionary synthesis. Um, the, this new paradigm that sort of replaced the modern synthesis of gene-based um, biology and looking at uh, all the ways in which our environment constitutes us. And if we're going to take that seriously, we also have to look at how when we try to select for something, we're never going to understand the implications of trying to, you know, uh, to uh, prescribe in a certain direction all the things that we're losing in the process. As one of my mentors, uh, Merdine Anderson, talks about, she says, <clears throat> natural selection proscribes. It says, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. And here's a little bit of room that you can do anything in. And so let, in that teeny little uh, opening, you get a proliferation of possibilities, which isn't selecting just based on one thing. Um, and so it's integrated. In artificial selection, we prescribe, we say, I want that. And I'm willing to sacrifice X, Y, and Z to get that. Like with GMOs, for example, we see that, <clears throat> um, you know, in the old days, uh, they would spray chemicals on a seed and they would, you know, grow a million plants. And the thing that had the characteristics that they wanted and looked most like the actual plant that before they had sprayed the chemicals on it, they selected that and then bred that seed. But that's not understanding the language of chemistry, the language uh, of biochemistry that um, plants use to communicate and reproduce. And it's, it's sort of like coming into it, you know, uh, an art gallery and trying to, uh, you know, paint with um, a tank. It's not going to work very well um, if you're actually concerned about the integrity and sort of agency of that uh, of, of, of that being. And I, I like to think that just as we like to think that we know what we're doing and that we don't like paternalism, uh, that plants are very similar in that way and that they are figuring out solutions to their in, environmental, ecological, social <laughs> uh, problems and issues um, in similar ways that best serve them. Um, and so when we can have solidarity with the more than human world, where does this bring us in terms of <clears throat> reassessing um, our priorities and how to achieve the things we, we, we need? When we, as Europeans, um, came to the Amazon basin, we didn't recognize that they were already farming. We didn't recognize that they were burning their compost at super low um, uh, temperatures to create um, terra preta, this black earth, that this carbon would soak up uh, the, the minerals, nutrients, and so that they wouldn't all be flooded out during the, uh, during the flood seasons, right? It wouldn't all be washed down river. And so it meant that they had more fecundity. So they would have areas where they, you know, would have these gardens that didn't look like gardens at all because it looked so wild. But this was illegible, uh, to use James Scott's term, um, from a European perspective as farming. So it wasn't glossed as something that was part of their territory. 
And so it couldn't be owned because it wasn't farming in the European way. And I'm suggesting that we go back a few thousand years and look at, you know, what Eric Wolf talks about in um, his book, Europe um, and the People Without History, that, you know, before overseas colonialism happened, uh, colonialism in Europe had already happened because, you know, the the druids who loved their trees um, and had their trees cut down uh, with, you know, they were dying. Same thing happened in India, uh, you know, a couple thousand years later. Um, there are many traditions of people living very close uh, to um, the more than human world, which constituted them. And we need to sort of revive uh, this knowledge and these traditions and these ways. And, our, and that's going to mean changing completely our infrastructure and um, de-engineering a lot of the um, built environment in order to provide more room for uh, experimentation, um, not just for us, but for the rest of the life that inhabits that area. And so, yeah, that's that's the book that I'm working on right now. That's so exciting. I can't wait to read it. And of course, you're always welcome back to the podcast um, if you'd like to discuss it further as it as it comes more into fruition. I really appreciate uh, you having me here, Kate, on uh, Networking with Plants. And uh, um, yeah, I've really enjoyed the other episodes so far. I'm so glad. It's always, I, I love talking to folks who are passionate about their work with plants. So it's always a joy for me to get to connect to so many cool people. Um, but it also makes me happy to hear that others are listening to the episodes and and drawing energy and joy and solidarity maybe from the work of other folks um, in this area. So yeah, thank you so much. If you're interested in learning more about networking with plants in the Anthropocene, please visit networkingwithplants.org, or you can feel free to email us at networkingwithplants at gmail.com. Until next week, go and start observing some of your relationships with other plants. Take good care. is kindly offered to us by artist Mylise. Mylise is a sonic artist, immersive ecology designer, and clean energy ambassador. Merging art and technology, she creates music experiences that express the voices of plants and the other inhabitants of the earth.